Welcome to the teaching ministry of Walt East, lead chaplain at Sky Valley Chapel. We hope this teaching will serve as a practical guide for your daily walk as a Christ follower. We encourage you to follow along with your Bible and life notes, which can be found in the podcast show notes or on our website at svmin.com. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Today we're going to hit a passage that I believe defines it. It's the first time in our study the book of Mark, as we've been looking at the life and the teachings of Jesus, the pages of, of what he said and, and what he's done, looking at this one who some say is a myth that, that we know as the Messiah. Today we're going to be in chapter 3, where he leaves the crowd and he comes to a place and he decides to sit down and say, this is what you're being called to do. He's going to answer the question, what is a disciple of Jesus Christ? Mark chapter 3, beginning at verse 7. It says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake. Now this is the Sea of Galilee, Lake Gennesaret, goes by a couple different names. And it says basically here that Jesus and the boys ran off. They ran away. They, they withdrew. Now, guys do that sometimes, don't we, ladies? Um, but but what's, what's Jesus, what's going on here? You know, what's he running from? Well, to understand that, you need to go back to what we looked at last week, to verse 5, where it says, Jesus looked around at them, and this is the religious leaders, he looked around at them with anger, Jesus was angry, and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. He was really upset. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand, he stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Time to run away. Now, if you weren't here last week, you, you know, Jesus had a chance to heal a man, a crippled man, but it was on the Sabbath day. It was on their holy day. A day that God had said would be a, a day of rest, but they've manufactured all these man-made laws to protect the Sabbath. And they said, you can't work, you can't do anything, you can't do this, you can't do that, and you cannot heal. You don't go to your job, God said. God wanted to be a day of rest. You don't go to your job, but you do spend time with your family. You spend time worshiping the Lord. He says, this is good for you. You walk with your God. You walk with your husband, your wife, your kids. Even in your singleness, you push the pause button. Otherwise, you'll have a tendency to try to work seven days a week. But man-made law said, you don't walk this far. You can't lift this. You can't tie a knot. You can't, you can't, you can't. And you can't heal. And Jesus said, really? You can't heal on a holy day? You think it's wrong to do that? Is there any other time that's better than the Sabbath day to heal a person? And so he healed the man just to show them. He said, you're putting rules, your rules, ahead of people when it should be the other way around. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Well, now the religious leaders have, have finally found a good reason to try and kill him. And so what did Jesus do? He withdrew. Now, I have to admit, I don't want to offend anybody, but there's, there's the warrior side of me that looks at Jesus and the boys and say, you know, I want Jesus to say, saddle up, guys. Lock and load. Let's go. We're going we're gonna to kick some butt here. We're going to go into their, into their headquarters and, and really show them. But he says, no, we're going to withdraw. He says, seriously, you're plotting to kill me? Why? Because I'm loving people? Because I'm doing good? 
because I'm healing people, because I'm, I'm teaching people the, the love of God, because I'm, I'm forgiving them of their sins. Let's get out of Dodge. And he gets the guys, and they, they ride out of town, and they go to the lake. They withdraw to the Sea of Galilee. And we're going to watch this strategy throughout this chapter as we, as we look at it today and in the coming weeks. And so it says, it continues there, A large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all that he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Now, this, if, if you look at your map of the Holy Land, this is a big place. This is a big area. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. So Jesus withdrew from the cities, and he goes out to the lonely regions around the lake. But the crowds have heard what he is doing. No one is talking yet about what he is teaching. They all know what he is doing, and the crowds come to him because they want him to do something for them. They want Jesus to meet their needs, their needs, their definition of their needs. And they all come so that they're, they're pushing around him. And, and knowing this, he tells the disciples, hey, find a boat. Find one that's not being used and, and have it somewhere there on the shore ready so that I can get it and I can push out. And he can teach from the boat. That way the crowd's not crowding up on him and, and, and crowding people. It also helps with the acoustics because sound travels over water. Any of you ever been fishing? And I remember going fishing with my grandfather when I was a little, little one. Shh, boy, you'll, you'll disturb the fish because your sound and even of your voice travels across water. Acoustics. Well, why is he wanting to have the boat and wants to push off from the shore? Is it, is it to get away from people? No. He wants to teach, and he knows that that'll facilitate his teaching. And we've been seeing this over and over and over again. And if, and if you haven't been here for the series, you can go back and pick up the podcast. But Jesus came to teach. He says, I can't teach if everyone's pushing and shoving and everybody's crowding around me. Everybody's carrying their, their illnesses, they're carrying their sick, they're carrying their, their loved ones, their brokenness. And, and once again, we find a crowd that gets, gets caught up in the spectacular, but not the spiritual. We have a crowd that gets caught up in everything Jesus can do for them, but no one in the scene is there really because of what he can teach them. And maybe I emphasize this too much because it's a hot button of mine. How much do I come to God for what he can do for me rather than saying, here I am, Lord, teach me. How do I become a better husband how do I become a better, a better dad, a better pastor? How do I become a better leader? How, how can I follow you better, Lord? How can I just be a better person? And once again, we find the crowds getting in the way of Jesus's agenda and bringing each one their own agenda to him. Now, it does say here that he heals people, but it doesn't say who, where, what, or how. It doesn't want to take us to the, to the spectacular. It doesn't want to take us to the miracles. It's the compassion of this God to heal people. But his agenda is to change us. His agenda is to change us spiritually, is to change us internally. You know, everybody that he heals will die. And he doesn't seem to care as much about the temporary when the eternal is at stake. I'll heal you, but what? You've got 10, 15 years to live. After that, what? 
He's bringing eternal life change. And the crowd wants the spectacular. They're not concerned about the eternal, the spiritual. The demon-possessed start, start screaming out, well, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus is silencing them, saying, I don't need your testimony. I don't need you to vouch for me. There's a secrecy throughout the book of Mark where, where he's telling people, don't, don't, don't tell anybody what I just did. Or he's silencing the demoniacs that come to him. Because he knows this is the result. Everyone is coming because they want God to bless them. And the more the word gets out that God is on earth, they just want to get the blessing. He says, I've come to teach. I've come to teach them. And sometimes our understanding and definition of God gets in the way of what he wants for us. He wants to teach them. So he withdraws to a lonely place and he has them ready a boat where he can push off from the shore and teach. Verse 13 continues. It says, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12, designating them apostles, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. If you're following along your life notes, circle three words there. Circle be, circle preach, and circle authority. We're going we're gonna to camp on this. We're going to come back to this in a few minutes. These are the 12 he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name Bonerge, which means sons of thunder. We've already seen those guys earlier back in a couple chapters back. Andrew, this is Simon Peter's brother. Philip, Bartholomew, what's your favorite Bartholomew story? Hmm, we'll come back to that too. Matthew, Thomas, James, son of... Oh, wait a second, James. There's two Jameses here. Wow. James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus. You got a favorite Thaddeus story? Neither do I. Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. Now here you have Mary and the siblings that, that Mary had with, with Joseph after Jesus was born. You know, I can, I can picture James, hey, Emma, mother, ha have, you heard what, have you heard what your son's doing? Yeah, how could you not hear? And so James is, is with Mary, and, and, and it, the Bible mentions the brothers, the half-brothers, the half-sisters that he had. And more than once, the Gospels will mention that his, his family comes and tries to take him away. You know, it's kind of like an embarrassment to him. There's, they just don't want to do with him. They think, he's, they think he's nuts. What are you thinking? You're going around telling everybody that you're God. The crowds are pushing in so tightly, you can't even eat. This is ridiculous. And he gives them no answer. But we'll come back to that as well. What I really want to camp on today is this definition of disciple. He called them to be apostles, those who are sent out. But then in Matthew 28, at the end of Matthew's gospel, he'll tell them to go into all the nations, baptizing people, teaching them to follow everything that I've taught you. It's a teaching ministry. Go make disciples. So what does it mean to be a disciple, to be a follower? And, and this is all they, they're given. You would think there would be several pages of instructions on this. You know, put anything together recently? You know, I, I hear you get these, 
you, you, get, you get this booklet when you put, go to put something together and it's got like six languages in the booklet. And the first thing I do is I tear off all the five languages I, I don't need and just keep the English. I guess they're trying to say paper. No, I guess not. Or what about a car? Have you looked at new cars recently? I mean, the truck I got last is a used truck, but it's new to us. The, the book for my truck is like two inches thick. You remember back when, when you know, it was only not even a quarter of an inch thick, the instructions to your car? And they're pretty complicated now. How many of you actually read those instructions? Okay, Tom, figures. But, you know, I wait, I wait till I run across a problem, then I read after I try to figure it out 16 times and stuff like that. And I'm, I'm, on, a, I'm, on, a, I'm on a Facebook page for Tundra owners, and, and a lot of the other owners, they, they beat this guy up mercilessly a, a couple weeks ago because the gentleman went on the Tundra page and, and was asking a question, and they're like, well, can't, can't you just read it in the book? And then others were braiding him for even, you know, to want to pull his man card because he's even asking a question. Um, but anyway, back to the scripture here. Instructions on how to be a disciple. If you want to be a follower of God, what do you get? You get two sentences here. And this is your job description. This is what we're going to camp on today. Look again with me at verse 13. It says, Jesus went up on a mountainside, and he called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12, designating them to be apostles, that they may be with him, that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. So what's a disciple? First off, it's about presence. It's about presence. Can you say that with me? It's all about presence. Not Christmas presence, it's presence, being with Jesus, simply to be with Jesus. Starting here with being with him, that's, that's where we want to start. It's where we have to start. It's where Jesus says you have to start. The preaching, they're not going to be doing that immediately. The power stuff, they're not going to be doing that immediately. Notice that he, he designated, he appointed them 12, that they might be with him. Presence. That's number one. The number one job of a Jesus follower is to be with Christ. Everything else is going to flow out of that relationship. And if that relationship isn't first and foremost, I promise you, the other things aren't really going to happen. It's why that old saying, and I, I couldn't find it uh, immediately, but back when I, when I was in the Navy, I traveled around. I was traveling amongst ship to ship to ship oftentimes, and I, and I had a little sign that I kept and I carried with me. And, and wherever I landed for a few days, or when I always had this on my desk, and, and it said, Christianity is a relationship. You've, you've probably seen those signs before. Picked it up for 99 cents at a Christian bookstore, and I carried that with me just to remind myself that Christianity is a relationship. And it's been used so much that sometimes we'll roll our eyes at it, yet it's never been more true. In the passage before, Jesus was walking around telling the religious leaders, you can't put new wine in old wineskin. It's going to bust at the seams. You see, the religious leaders are frustrated with who Jesus is hanging out with, how he's not fasting, how he's, he's not washing his hands the way they want him to, to wash his hands. He's not following their man-made rules. I'm not just talking about just simple hygiene. I'm talking about they had these ritual wash hand washings they were doing. That's what they were upset about. And he goes, look, you cannot put new wine in an old wineskin. You don't understand it? Let me, let me try another one. You can't sew a new patch on an old shirt. It's just going to rip it apart at the seams whenever you go to wash it. And Jesus is standing in the midst of religious leadership, and he's saying, I will not fit in your box. I'm not going to be a patch on your life. 
I will not. I'll blow it apart at the seams. Your flesh cannot handle it. I'm not going to fit your definition of religion. This isn't a philosophy. It's not an ideology. It's, it's not a book of do's and don'ts, and, and somehow God graves on a curve so that certain people that are ahead of the curve get in and other people that don't. He goes, that's ridiculous. That's religion. You can't put me in a religion. I'm new wine, and you cannot pour new wine into old wineskins. It's going to burst. And he says, this is a relationship with God. You cannot earn it. You cannot deserve it. You, you'll never live up to it. And guess what? You'll never be a good enough Christian to get into heaven. And ironically, that's good news. That's the best news ever because it's a gift. It's grace. It's mercy. We don't have to keep the rules. It doesn't depend upon you and me. It depends upon the finished work of Christ on the cross. He goes, that's what it's all about. Now, that's the job of a disciple to be with me. And we expect chapters and chapters and chapters of how we live our life, about conduct, about character, about our speech, our relationships, about what movies we can see, what movies we can't see. And it's not pages. It's three things here. Number one, here's your job. You're going to be with me. By the way, there's two, two more things, but it all comes out of you just being with me. Have you ever been with someone who's really, really, really good, and the more that you're with them, the better you are? Have you ever had a, a mentor, a mentor who trained you, who poured their life into you and, and, and taught you things, and the more you hung around that mentor, the more you picked up? Imagine being with someone that is great. No, not just great, but the greatest. No, not, not, not the greatest, but God himself. This is discipleship. It's like what's talked about in, in 1 John uh, chapter 4, where it says that it's not that we love God, it's that God loves us. You know, we love him because he loved us. He loved us first, and he gave his son for us so that we could have this relationship with him. God isn't a distant God just sitting out there in the cosmos just waiting, you know, okay, you missed that roll, bam, you know, strike him down. That's not God. That's not God. And Jesus came to teach them that. He came to teach us that. So hanging out with Jesus, you realize how much he loves you, what he's done for you. They'll never take his eyes off of you. And then there will start to be a response. And you'll find that living out that response, that that is loving God. It's not something that, that you've mustered up on your own. It's a response of faith. It's a response to being with a God who loves you. It's the call of Christianity. It's not pages and pages and pages. He says, I want you guys to be with me. Look at what Acts chapter 4, verse 13 says here. It says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, it's talking about the religious officials in Jerusalem. This is after the resurrection in Acts 4. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Who are these guys? What do they teach? I mean, these guys aren't educated folks. They're, they're common guys. And so they marveled at how these ordinary men, and they, and they noticed what's different. Well, they've been with Jesus for three years. This is Christianity that we practice the presence. So how are we with Jesus? 
It's why we talk about so much of being in the Word so that the Word can get in you. Every once in a while, it's, it, it's, it's good to, to take time. I would say on a daily basis, it's good to take time and, and, and look at God's Word and get God's Word into you. Not just reading it, but listening. Listening not just with your head, but with your heart. And letting that still small voice of the Holy Spirit speak to you and help you and show you things that you need to see. We've all had it, I'm sure, where, where we, we've read through, you know, through, we're reading through a passage and something jumps out of us and it's like, I've read through this, you know, a hundred times. But today, it's because the Holy Spirit has your number. He reads your mail. He knows everything going on in your life, even better than you do. And he'll bring things to remember and he'll use Scripture in order to help you through that day. We need to spend time in the Word of God, soaking it in. Our first Samuel begins with this incredible story about this mother named Hannah. And she goes to the place of the tabernacle where Eli the priest is. And every year she comes and, and she's praying there and she's, she's praying so fervently that the priest thinks she's drunk. That's how fervently Hannah is praying. She, and she's praying for a son. She's praying that God would grant her a child, a son. And God does finally give her a son, and she names him Samuel, which, which in Hebrew, it means God heard me. God heard her prayer, and he gave her a son. And when Samuel is weaned when he's young, Hannah takes Samuel to Eli, the priest, and says, I want to dedicate him to the Lord. Not just dedicate him to the Lord, I want him to work with you, the high priest. I want him to live there, here with you. And I'll come and I'll bring, him, I'll bring him some provisions and stuff every once in a while, but I want him to, to work here and work for the Lord with the priest. And so that's where Samuel lives every day. He's part of the, uh, the, the entourage there working with the tabernacle with Eli and the other priests and uh, doing the, all the sacrificial system, all that stuff. And it's the epicenter of all things Yahweh, which is the name of God at that time. And then in 1 Samuel 3, there's a story about God whispering Samuel's name in the middle of the night. Samuel's sleeping there in one of the rooms, and, and, and he hears this voice, Samuel, Samuel. And he gets up and he goes, call me, Eli. And he goes, no, I'm not calling you. Happens again. And so he goes to Eli again. He goes, I didn't call you. And it happens enough times that Eli finally says, next time you hear it, I want you to say, speak, Lord, your servant hears. But in verse 7 is a very interesting verse there. It says, now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. I find this to be a very terrifying verse in the Bible. You see, you can live at the temple. You can daily work with the high priest. You can be involved in the most religious activities every day of your life and not know the presence of God. It's religion. And Jesus said, don't pour me into your religion. I will burst it at the seams. Don't put me as a patch on your religiosity. I promise I'll tear it apart. This is a relationship that I want to walk with you. Be with me. Secondly, a Jesus followers to do is to preach. Pass on what you've learned from Jesus. And we're not talking about professional preaching, proclamation like what I'm doing up here this morning. You're going to pass on to others what you've learned from Jesus. And this isn't just the domain of pastors. It's the domain of every Jesus follower. Pass on what you've learned from him. 
We're going to be talking about this in the, in the chapters that follow here in Mark's gospel. He'll send them out, and we're going to see what the disciples do. But for now, they've got to do step one, so they're not preaching about it. It's not about setting up a, a box on a, on a street corner somewhere with big signs and yelling at traffic as it, as it goes by. It's not about having a platform like this. It's simply passing on what God is teaching you, what the Holy Spirit is, is showing you, what you're learning from being with Jesus. Sometimes preaching is sharing with another mom truths about raising a kid or an adult kid and finding out the truth that you've learned through your Christian faith. Sometimes it's talking to a friend about what they need to do about their marriage because of what God has done in your marriage. Sometimes it's talking to anybody that has a need that you see, someone that's struggling, and you say, let me tell you how my life changed. Let me tell you what changed it. And, and, and you share that. You don't share religion. You share the relationship that you have with Christ. But it only comes if step one is happening, if you're being with Jesus. It's hard to share about a relationship that you know nothing about or that you're not in. We call that a fake, a poser. Step three is this, power. The life of Jesus that frees us and frees others. And again, I'll read. It's, it's very short here. I'll read it again. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12, designating them apostles that they might be with him. That's presence. Be with him. That's presence. And that, they, that he might send them out to preach. There's the preaching. And to have authority. That's power to drive out demons. So we see here the presence, we see the preaching, we see the power. We've seen this power in chapter 2 when, when a paralyzed man is, is lowered through the roof down in front of Jesus. And Jesus asks the question, says, what is easier to say? Pick up your mat and walk or to say that your sins are forgiven? Well, it's easier to say that your sins are forgiven. And so he does. He says your sins are forgiven. And this just, you know, causes a stir amongst the religious folk there. But it's harder to tell the guy to pick up his mat and walk and for him to actually do it. And so what does Jesus do? He tells the man, pick up your mat and walk. And paralyzed Pat goes home with a testimony of what Christ has done in his life. And at the beginning of chapter 2, Jesus shows what his power is about. He says, my power is about setting you free. It's about setting you free from, from sin. It's about setting you free from, from the, the vestiges of sin that, that, that are on this on this earth. It's about setting you free from oppression. There's a spiritual war that's going on, and, and I think that Satan works a whole lot different in, in our culture than he does in, in a lot of places like Africa and, and South America and places like Haiti down the Caribbean. Those are cultures that are very open and very sensitive to the spiritual world. We're not quite that sensitive to the spiritual world here in America. Here, it's mainly entertainment-driven. And today in our culture, Satan works through screens, we got screens everywhere. We've got screens in our, in our living rooms. We've got screens in our pocket. We've got screens in our vehicles. We've got screens everywhere. But in our culture, he works through screens because he knows that, that we're simply a click away. That's how he can get into our marriage. That's how he can get into our head. That's how he can divide us. That's how he can, can divide us away from God and can cause us to believe falsehoods about, about him, about ourselves, or about others. Don't get me wrong, we still live in a spiritual world. We live in a world where we come into contact with the, with the spiritual, with the demonic. And Jesus goes, let me tell you about my power. It's to set people free. Hang out with me. 
I'm going to change your life. Don't worry about trying to love me. Just hang out with me. Know that I love you and experience that. Understand grace and mercy. And when you come to grips with grace and mercy, knowing that that we should be destined for an eternal hell without God, and instead he'll pay the price, he's already paid the price for us to have a relationship with this God and to walk with him, that's grace, that's mercy. When you truly understand that and understanding who Jesus is and why he's done it, you come to see that, that you have purpose in life, you have significance in life, and I promise there'll be a response. And that response is that you're going to find yourself loving this God who gave his life for you. You're going to have something to share with others. You're going to have something to preach using words if necessary. You're going to have something to give to others. And, and here's what it's all about. It's about freeing people from where they were, from where their heart was, from their, from their ego, from their materialism, from their possessions. He said, that's what I'm calling you to do. So who can be a disciple? It's easy. Those who are called by Jesus and those who come to Jesus. Well, did Jesus have to call you or can you just come to him? Yes, I think so. Jesus went up on a mountain and he called to him those he wanted and they came to him. Well, well, can you come to Jesus if he doesn't call you? I don't think so. I think if you come to Jesus, it's because he's calling you. Well, what if you don't come? Well, then you're probably not a disciple. What if he's not calling me? Well, just the fact that you're asking the question, I think he is calling you. You know, I don't know if it's the chicken, the egg, the egg, the chicken, and it doesn't really matter. It's the whole farm, okay? Just, just jump in the ranch. That's all I'm saying. Open the gate and step in. Did he call you here? You come? Okay, that's, that's good. Yes. Congratulations. You respond to it. And yet you look at yourself, we, we do this, we, we say, oh, man, but you don't understand. You don't understand my life. You don't understand what I've, what I've been through. No, I probably don't necessarily understand it, but I know that he does. You need to understand discipleship. Discipleship is just being with him, trusting him with your time, with your life, with your money, with everything about you. Disciples aren't picked because of who they are or what they've done. Write this down in your notes. A disciple was not picked because of who they were, but because of who God could make them to be. Not because of who they were, but because of who God could make them be. It's not about who you are. I put some verses in your life notes, and we don't have time to go through all of them, but you can go through this week. God says, I delight in taking the foolish things of the world and making them wise. It's not about where you are today. It's about where God wants to take you. And we have so many reasons, excuses why it doesn't apply to us. And, and, and he would say, then you don't understand. It's not about you. It's about me. It's about what my plans that I have for you. Jesus picked two guys, two people that he called the, the sons of thunder. And that's a, that's a little bit curious. Okay, you got anger issues, you know, think? He has a couple of brothers with a short fuse. He calls them sons of, of thunder. And these guys are like, let's go mix it up. You know, let's go down the lake and get into it. You know, these guys always want to brawl. They would have made great sailors. Well, they were sailors. They are fishermen, right? Okay, so he picked Peter. You do I need to say more? He picked Peter. Peter, who later would deny him. And there was a place here in, uh, in about the eighth chapter we're going to look at in a, in a few weeks, a few months maybe, where, where Jesus refers to Peter as Satan, as my adversary. He's going to say, get behind me, Satan. 
He picked Simon the Zealot. That's what we know about Simon. This guy's a, a revolutionary. He's, he's sworn to defend the nation of Israel at all costs, even his own life, against the Roman oppression. And then he picks a guy named Matthew, who's a, who's a colla- collaborator with the Roman government, collecting exorbitant taxes to, from his fellow Jews. And what does he do? You guys are going to bunk together. And this is amazing. There are guys in there that we really don't know much about, and, and maybe that's good. Like I said, Bartholomew and, and Thaddeus, and maybe we don't know much about them because we only follow certain stories of, of, these, of these select few because God doesn't want us to see something so magnificent that we look at it and say, oh, man, I could never be a follower of Jesus. These guys are all superheroes, superstars. It's not about who they were. It's about who he was going to make them. You know, if I picked 12, it would be a different 12. Now, I, I want three smooth-talking guys, three guys with charisma, three guys that are good on the stage, three guys that, um, that, that, that don't stutter, that can stand up here without doing that, three, three guys that are good with words. And then I want two theological PhDs so they can fact-check everything and make sure that, that they can write all the stuff that the guys on the stage are going are gonna to put out. And then I got two money guys, and they're going to support the whole ministry. And, and, and you need two because if something happens to one, then you've know, you got a backup there. And that's what, five, six, that's seven, because we need five more. And the last five guys, I want, I want some big guys, some big linebacker-type guys. They can travel around with us and, and, and do security and, and help us out there. And that's the perfect 12 that I would pick. And Jesus says, no. I'm picking guys that are diametrically opposed to one another. I'm going to pick guys that wouldn't necessarily get along. I'm going to pick guys that don't get me. And, oh, yeah, by the way, Judas, you're in. Because there's no human being that is going to thwart the plans of God. So what can we expect as a disciple of Jesus? Well, you can expect criticism, but avoid conflict. In fact, if we're not being criticized, we might not be doing what God called us to do. He's criticized, yet he avoids the conflict. His family comes and says, we think he's crazy. He's out of his mind. That's a direct quote from the scripture, what they were saying about brother Jesus. And he doesn't say anything. He avoids the conflict. You think I'm out of my mind? You know, really? You know, I knew the crowd was going to be pressing around, so I had a boat waiting so that I could just push off from shore. I set up 12 as a leadership team, leadership structure, a system that we could do my teaching and my, and my training. My entire ministry is about being other-centered. I'm not easily provoked when people come to, to kill me. You think I'm out of my mind? He's got the most strategic leadership style and character and personality, but people don't understand him because he's not being religious. He's just being incredibly relational as God, and he wants to change people for eternity, not just for now. We can also do this. We can expect to live a life that doesn't fuel the opposition. You know, I've never had a conversation with a Christian that came up to me after a service and said, people at work hate me because I'm the most loving, humble servant. I put everyone first, and my job is just to lift them up and serve them. Jesus walks away from the conflict and the opposition. He says that conflict, that that opposition, that doesn't help my cause. It doesn't help what I'm called to do. Oh, there will be a time There will be a time when a woman will be brought in front of him who was caught in the act of adultery, and he will stand in front of the rocks and tell them, not on my watch, not on my watch. He'll stand for others, but not himself. And so this is the job description. 
Be with me. Share with others what I've taught you. Through my power, free them. Congratulations. Go into the entire world and make disciples, followers of all nations. If you call yourself a Jesus follower, this is your job description. This is what you're invited to. And it should change you dramatically to a point to where you're going to want to share with other people. That's Christianity. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this message. For more information on Chapel Mole and the ministry of Sky Valley Chapel, please visit our website at svmin.com. You can support this ministry on our website, Facebook page, or by downloading our app in the Apple or Google Play Store. Have a blessed day.